From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrano. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the shag carpeting, the ping-pong table, and the wood-burning stove. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And hello to everyone checking us out on one of our affiliates across North America. How do, how do to those listening via the Conspiracy Show app, those of you watching the live stream on our YouTube channel, Strange Planet, those of you in the live stream chat room, however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Former U.S. Secret Service agent Gary Byrne is here. His new book is titled Secrets of the Secret Service. The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Uh, before we get Gary back in here, just a reminder, we are streaming live on YouTube tonight. Go to my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and don't forget to hit that red sub button. Uh, next week on the program, author-researcher John Potash will be here. Several years ago, John wrote a very controversial book called Drugs as Weapons Against Us, and that has now been turned into a documentary film. He'll be here to tell us all about it. That's next week on The Conspiracy Show. Gary Byrne is a former Secret Service agent who helped protect the Clinton White House in the 1990s. He is the author of Crisis of Character and his latest Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Let me remind the listeners, we're going to open the phone lines as well. If you'd like to weigh in with a question or comment about the history of the Secret Service or what's happening now, where did it go wrong? We've had a number of instances, of course, where the Secret Service has been uh, disgraced. You may recall that Bitcoin heist involving a Secret Service uh, member. Then back in 2012, we had the um, Secret Service, I believe it was in Colombia. They were there protecting the president, and uh, there was kind of an all-night drunken party involving prostitutes and so forth. Uh, there have been a number of security breaches at the White House. We'll get into that as well. If you'd like to weigh in with a question or comment, phone lines now open at 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740. Toll free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. 1-866-740-4740. 740. Let's talk about uh, some recent security breaches at the White House. What's you know what's happening? Uh, how does something like that happen? How does uh, well, for example, a recent uh, incident at the Trump White House? Walk us through. What do you think is going wrong here? Well, again, it goes. It, it comes down to the Secret Service's management style. They're trying to do, you know, if they need a thousand people, they're trying to do it with seven hundred. And they're, they're exhausting these guys. And I can't overstate that enough. I hate to sound like a, uh, but that's where you have to start. You have to start with your manpower. And just to, just to give you a, a quick example, the, uh, the average uniform division officer at the White House makes, depending on how long he's been on the job, let's say he makes between seventy and $90,000 a year. Some of those guys in 2017 made $235,000 a year. They made more than the Secretary of Homeland Security because they're working so much overtime. Um, so, but to get back to the, you know, what causes the fatigue, they get distracted, um, they're tired, 
um, and they're, they're stretched manpower-wise, and where they might might need 25 agents to hold down and officers to hold down a perimeter or, or 50, they're using you know uh, they're using 35 instead of using 50 because they're they're stretched. People make mistakes, um, and the truth of the matter is is that they they also have a very young workforce. Um, their turnover rate is is incredible. Um, in the last 10 years. So those are all factors that, that people need to look at. Um, there was a recent, uh, there was a pair of Secret Service agents that were assigned to protect Trump, and they've opened up about the uh, sort of the anxieties of their job, and there were, a, you know, a pair of incredible assassination threats that they stopped in Manila. Uh, how... Um, how often are there attempts that we don't hear about? Quite often, actually. Um, the, do you want to talk about the, the uh, attempt on President Clinton when he was in office in Manila? Do you, you know about that one? No, I don't. I, I was just going to. Yeah. I was. I mentioned the one about Trump, but uh, no. Tell me about Clinton's yeah. assassination attempt. Yeah, let's start with this one because it also kind of loops in what we were talking about earlier about. An agent overriding the president, or vice versa. This this is this happened there too. So they're in, in Manila, and President Clinton, um, you know, he has a public schedule. But then, while he was in Manila, there was a um, there, he was doing a private meeting with with a, a leader from another country, and it was off the record. And so, when they're leaving the one event that they're at to go to the next event, they're gonna they're gonna stop in between for this kind of clandestine meeting, and it's done very often. There's nothing sinister about it. It's just that somebody wants some advice, and you know. So anyway, um, at the last minute, the the um, agent uh, in charge of the president's detail, who was actually in charge of PPD at the time, his name is Lou Marletti. This is all public knowledge. Um, Lou was a good guy, and uh, he's in charge of the president's detail. And he tells the president at the last minute, "We're changing the route. It's going to take us 15 more minutes to get there." And we're going to be a little bit late to your to your meeting in between, but we have to change the route. And President Clinton was upset about it. He really went off on, on Lou, and um, but Lou stuck to his guns. And the information he got came from the U.S. Army was 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 helping the Secret Service with with doing some surveillance. And the U.S. Army said that they believed they had a viable threat on, on a bridge, and. Um, that there was, could be possible explosives on a bridge. So they took the, the uh, secondary route. And the president made his meeting and everything. When they when they went to the bridge and they did an investigation, they found a, a bomb with more than 25 pounds of explosives. It would have completely destroyed the entire motorcade. It was a real threat. And Lou Marletti saved President Clinton's life, absolutely. And um, and that's one of those times where he overrode the president's wishes and he, because he believed in it, you know, Lou Marletti had been, you know, in, in the army during Vietnam. He had actually been in the uh, special forces medic. Like he believed, you know, he was, he was emotionally connected to the army and believed these guys. And, uh, it saved the president's life. And he took a, you know, he took a beating over it at the, at the time. But as soon as the story got out, of course, he kind of became a hero. So. And, um, how many, do we know how many attempts have been, uh, foiled? During the Trump presidency, uh, there's there's two that I know of. Um, but to be honest, with you, I'm, I'm not sure that they're public. Um, but if you know of an attempt, tell me about it. And I'm sure I know, like I know most of them, but uh, there's two I know. I'm not sure if they're public or not. 
Well, there was the one also in the Philippines during the Asian 50 right. summit. That was in November 2017. Right. Sim- similar situation. Um, and, and, and they, um, actually a very similar situation. And, um, and, and it was detected and it was thwarted. Um, there was another one that we talked about in the, in the book in Secrets of the Secret Service that, um, right after President George Herbert Walker Bush left office, um, he was over in the Middle East and they, Stepped over a stone wall to that was absolutely Saddam Hussein was trying to kill him and this is and uh, it was a viable threat, but they they found it, they detected it and they, and they stopped it. And um, and it, it gets really complicated when you're in another country because then they're responsible for like responding to it. And sometimes some of these other countries they may they respond you may respond with a bulldozer when they could have responded with a shovel or or even vice versa. You know. So it's very tough. The Secret Service, um, you know, not an easy job, um, especially if, if those guys that are making those decisions, you know, that are on the ground with the protectee, you know, because the life, I mean, they're protecting the president, but they're involved in it too. You know, if, if, for instance, if Lou Marletti had relented and, and, and buckled to President Clinton's pressure and stayed on that route, they'd all, they'd, they probably all would have been killed. I mean, 25 pounds of explosives on a bridge is enormous. Right, right. The um, the groundwork, you know, let's say a president is coming and he's going to be staying uh, in a hotel. Let's say in in Toronto, they're coming to Toronto for a a G twenty or or a G seven, and they're going to stay at the let's say they're staying at the Fairmont York Hotel. How much in advance does the Secret Service come to vet hotel employees? Uh, to you know, to 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 scour the hotel, et cetera, et cetera. How I mean, how much? Walk me through how much groundwork is involved here in advance. Uh, yeah. So the the minimum, the minimum is about three weeks, preferably a month or more. Um, they could do a lot of the like they could do a lot of the research that they need to do. Somebody can do it really from Washington D.C. from a laptop. You know, you get a list of the names of the employees. You start running them. You, you know, of course. You, you, you go to Canadian uh, law enforcement intelligence. They're going to give you all the help that they can. Um, and and they're actually working together. When that Secret Service agent gets into, into Canada, he's immediately met with a counterpart from, from Canadian law enforcement and or intelligence or both, and probably somebody from Canadian military, and they all work together. You know, the agent will say this, you know, the, they, in most cases they know what they need. I mean, in some cases, these guys work together so often. And actually, your um, your example of Canada is a perfect one. Um, they go there so often that you know these guys are probably friends already. You know, they know each other, and they're passing each other the information before they, you know, the, the guy even lands on the ground. And um, and then you have to, you know, you have to get bodies. You have to get law enforcement bodies from the Canadian uh, police department. And um, and you have to get cooperation from the hotel. And of course, everybody's more than willing to cooperate with you. And, um, it's, it's many long hours, a lot of meetings. And then they, you know, you, you give everybody kind of their marching orders to a certain degree and everybody carries it out. And if they need, if they run into roadblocks and they contact the Secret Service back or, or in this case, like the Canadian uh, supervisor for the military law enforcement and they get what they need. And because uh, nobody wants nobody wants everything to go off without a hitch, and then they want the super service to get the hell out as fast as they can. So, right. I mean, um, for a hotel, it must be 
that must be just hell for a hotel to have to contend with that because you're commandeering elevators. You're, do you vet every single employee of the hotel? Yeah, they do. And just to give you an example, I've been involved in it in this way. I've, I've been on duty, uh, you know, in events like this and I've been in hotels and the route to move the president goes through the kitchen. And, and more than once, I've been the like I've been the UD officer because I worked outside the Oval Office. All the senior agents knew me very well. So more than once, I've been asked to go into the kitchen and stand there right on the route where the president's going to pass by. And you know, about five minutes before he gets there, I walk into the kitchen, and, and there'd be an agent at each end, and I'd be in the middle. And um, you know, just before they would move in, like if somebody was. If there was a chef standing next to a table with a bunch of knives butchering meat, I'd say, listen, when I tell you, put the put meat cleaver down and just step away for a minute. And they're like, oh, okay, you know. And um, mm-hmm. and they do. You know, you just everybody just kind of stops and pauses for a second, lets the protectee walk through. More than, more than likely, the protectee is going to say hi and thank you and smile at them and then keep on going. And then once he gets to the other side of the room or out of the room, they go back to butchering their meat and cooking and doing whatever they're doing. I don't know, uh, Gary, I would think ever since June of 68 in the Ambassador Hotel, taking the president through the kitchen, bad idea. Yeah, well, you, you got a good, you got a valid point. The, the problem wasn't the route they took, they just didn't have it secured. But that's a good example of, of what I'm talking about. You know, they, they, their, their, their ideal of taking them through the kitchen was great to avoid the crowd. The problem was it wasn't secure. They didn't have real protection. I mean, I love Rosie Greer, but, um, you know, he was a good football player and, and probably a very good minister, but, you know, they just didn't have enough security. They weren't doing real security, you know. So. Well, um, in 68, presidential candidates weren't afforded Secret Service protection. Are they today? Yes. Yes, they are. And it's kind of... Uh, you know, again, we you know we improve things by by disasters. You know, and um, so after uh, RFK gets killed, uh, they pass a law. They start doing protection for the word they use is viable candidate. So who's the decide who's viable? Who's a viable candidate? So this is this this election coming up in 2020 is going to be a very very tough election for the Secret Service because at some point. There could be as many as 15 viable candidates um, on the, just on the Democratic side. So you can imagine the Secret Service will be stretched way beyond their limits. I mean, they'll be barring agents from the DEA, from um, from the ATF, from the U.S. Marshal Service um, to, to to man all these all these protectees. Um, yeah, it gets very cumbersome. Um, but it, that's the terminology they use. And, and the way who decides it's a viable candidate, it's the Secret Service a little bit, and then there's a group of about six. There's like three people from senior government agencies, like senior people from government agencies, and then three people in the Washington, D.C. area that, that um, they're not necessarily government employees, and they kind of sift through the information and they suggest to the Secret Service and the President, look, these guys are really viable candidates. Um, and in some cases, the president can say, well, you know, you're not providing a protection to this certain person, but I know from the Secret Service that this is a viable threat against them, so we're going to protect them too. And the Secret Service never says no. Um, and, and that's good and that's bad. 
Uh, right. That, that therein lies the problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they never. They, they don't say no. We'll 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 come back to that. Let me uh, grab a call here. Melanie has been waiting patiently, and she's checking in from Toronto. Good evening. Good morning, Melanie. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Thank you, and a happy New Year to everybody. I was wondering, Likewise. what do you think of the scenario? You're protecting the president uh, of the United States, but you're also in the same room with another foreign, let's say, president or prime minister, leader of a country, and he has his detail to protect him, and they're armed. How do you know that one of those uh, men or women would not be a threat to your president because all these other people are also armed protecting suppose let's say Putin or or Jiang Xiaoping what how do you how do you determine whether they're do you vet their people out also and they vet your people out how is that done and also the second question very quickly what do you feel should be done in North America with the bad press policing has gotten you knowing the system how would you correct that if you were in charge Excellent okay. questions, Melanie. Let's tackle that yeah. first one first. How, the the the, the uh, foreign leaders' security detail. How do you yeah. know to trust them? Great question. Um, I, I, I tell you what. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a bone to a friend of mine. I hope your listeners still listening. Um, write this name down, Dan Emmett. His name is Dan Emmett. He's a former Secret Service agent that wrote a book, and he tells you a terrifying story in his book about that exact thing. And basically what you do is, let's say the country is Israel, not an issue. We're very, we work together with them all the time. Let's say the company, is, let's say the country is one of the African countries that we're at odds with. And the security, um, you know, we have questions about their security. The Secret Service, basically what they do is, is they double up with the agents. And the presidents are, the presidents we protest, because I've seen this happen with Clinton, where, you know, he'll be in the Oval Office and all of a sudden he'll look up and two or three agents will walk in because they have some concerns about something in the office. Um, and they'll double up and they will, you know, protect them. And if they, if they think it's necessary, um, they will, uh, ask the security from the other, uh, country to, um, to, you know, back up a little bit and give them a little bit, give the protectees a little bit of room. I've, I've been in the room when it's happened. I've been outside the Oval Office when similar things are happening and, Happened in, uh, but this guy I used to work with, Dan Emmett, wrote a great story about that, uh, that happened to him. So, um, great question. And what was the second follow up question? It has to do with the bad press the president's getting, I guess. Well, that's just the nature of the beast. There's not much you can do about that. You know, it's just, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a large portion of the United States that love them and put them in office, and the other half wants to, um, throw shoes at them. You know, and that's the way it typically is. It's just that, I mean, I do admit that today the hostilities for the press towards President Trump seems to be a little bit different, but I watched that deteriorate over the last 25 or 30 years. So that's just where we are now, you know. It has ramped up considerably. Other presidents have had bad press, but when you have Congress uh, members of the House of Representatives like Maxine Waters really inciting, not necessarily violence, but people to get in the up in the face of Trump administration officials. Should she have been charged with incitement? Should a Secret Service agent have spoken to her? I'm pretty sure under the circumstances, somebody from the Secret Service, the U.S. Capitol, Congress actually has liaison people from the Secret Service there. And I'm sure somebody went by and talked to her chief of staff about it. Um, here's the problem with somebody like Maxine Waters. You know, there's always a group of people out there that 
that are easy to incite. And and it doesn't mean that they're crazy. It means that they're, you know, in some cases, in my experiences, uh, which have been in over 29 years, you know, they're high strung. And if the right person triggers them and they do, you know, basically my point is, is that kind of rhetoric from somebody like Maxine Waters is going to get somebody hurt. Because if that person ends up at the White House and tries to get aggressive, they're going to get themselves arrested or worse, you know, hurt. Um, you know, it's a, it, a lot of times it's uh, it's one of the things that the Secret Service had problems with inciting people to jump over the fence. And, and um, you know, years ago when uh, people would actually jumped the fence as a prank. And um, and we, we almost killed a couple of people, you know, uh, tackling them and stopping them. And, and, um, but when you when you... Uh, incite people to go and if you see a cabinet member um, or or one of the protectees and get in their face, you're you're closing the distance between them and the security. You're raising up the anxiety and one mistake and there could be a complete disaster. Um, I've I've seen it happen. Gary Byrne, former Secret Service agent and a terrific new book, Secrets of the Secret Service: The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Gary Byrne stays with us, former Secret Service agent and the author of A Crisis of Character, and his new one, Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service, uh, working the rope, as they call it. That must be one of the worst assignments, working the rope. Explain what that is. Yeah, so let's say the president's going to um, come outside in public and shake hands. And um, so we set up a rope line. Literally, if we have to, um, we'll just, we, they carry um, spools of rope and they'll just stretch the rope out, get everybody behind it. A lot of, we try to use like bicycle racks that we know it's going to happen early. Um, in some cases, I've actually worked the ones that were so last minute. And we weren't really prepared, but we didn't even have rope and agents and sometimes other government employees. We just hold hands, you know, like hands around the world and just stand in front of the protectee and, uh, and push the crowd back as far as we can. And then one or two officers or agents will go into the crowd and, and search people's hands and you have them hold their hands up and look at their, you know, and try to pat them down. Um, yes, it is, it is high stress, but I will tell you. If you're if you're an adrenaline junkie like most people in the Secret Service, it's also very exciting. And once it's over and nobody's been hurt, it's been a great experience. So, but it it, it will wind you up. I've I've done many of them, um, and um, and some of them um, are kind of funny when you know the things that go wrong. So, 
And what about when the president decides to get out of the limo and walk, uh, let's say, during, after the, during the inauguration or after the inauguration? I mean, You're that's right. got to be stressful. The inauguration walk is actually not, is, it's not as crazy as, as it looks to you. Um, so what we do is we set up an area. There's a, the, the last hundred yards. It's basically from, from um, um, 12th Street up to the front of the White House. So we, that we, the whole area is secure, but when you get to that point, the Secret Service has taken steps to make sure that every avenue of approach that you could possibly do with a rifle is is thwarted. It's either being looked at, it's uh, the counter snipers up there, they have the window, um, all the buildings around the, the White House area, the roofs of the buildings are alone, and they ring right to the Secret Service. The, the windows are sealed up and closed, that type of thing. Um, any Anybody... That everybody that gets into that area goes through a metal detector, so you know you don't have a weapon or a satchel bomb or anything like that. I mean, um, that's one of the things they do pretty good, um, and they they don't um, they don't skimp on anything, uh, you know, along that uh, along those lines. Like they 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 have the manpower, they they work on it, you know, months and months and months in advance, and they practice it. They actually practice it. The Secret Service practices it. Some of the groups like Counter Sniper will practice individually. PPD will practice and then they get together a couple times and they out at the training center and they all do it together. And they make up scenarios and after they've practiced all the reasonable scenarios, then they'll practice some real unreasonable scenarios. And uh, they, they work it very hard. True or false, Secret Service carry bags of the President's blood with them. True. True. Um, secrets, it's not actually the, the, the Secret Service isn't physically carrying them. Uh, the White House doctor is. Yes, they do. They they have uh, they have uh, replacement blood. Yep, and platelets and, and uh, plasma. Absolutely. Yep. With them in the presidential limo? Yeah, not normally in the limo. Um, usually in, in the on the plane. Um, but there there is a scenario where if they needed it, absolutely. Yes. And when the president is traveling, is is the route planned out so that he that the president is never further than X number of miles from a from a medical facility? Yeah, it is. Um, what they do is, first off, the not to um, mess your question up, but the most important thing is is uh, not most important, but one of the important things is is that Air Force One is also a hospital. So you, you've got that. And then the the route that he's taking, the hospitals are picked for certain specialties. Um, you know, if you're in New York, L.A., Chicago, Philadelphia, your hospitals are experts on gunshot wounds. You know, most of them are because of just the crime in the city. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and let's say if a president has a special health issue, which I'm not aware of, of any with President Trump, um, and I'm not really – None of them that I have protected really had anything too serious, to be honest with you. Like nobody had a faulty heart or anything like that out of the, you know, out of the, you know, the norm of you know, um, regular, you know, people that have heart attacks. Nobody had a serious issue. So, but they do, they do pick routes. Um, they know where all the hospitals are. You know, you have your hospital for for shooting trauma. You have your hospital for 
um, you know, head injuries, sometimes at the same hospital. Um, and they are put on standby, and they have agents standing by at the hospital in case something goes wrong. And this is some of the lessons that they've learned from the Reagan attempt at a Reagan assassination. Originally, they were going to take Reagan to the White House after he was shot. Yeah. He, he thought he was just had a, a rib injury. I mean, why the decision to go right to the White House? I, I'm guessing that's as well equipped as many hospitals. No, well, yes and no. There is a doctor there, but 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 it's it's pure um, reactional instinct. Um, the safest place to have him is inside that fence line. You've got hundreds of uniformed division officers around them, around the complex, in the complex. You've got, you know, 50 agents. It's the safest place to be. We can lock it down very well. That was his natural instinct to get back to the White House. And then his, the agent's name was Jerry Parr. And President Reagan was complaining to him that he thought Jerry broke his ribs when he pushed him into the car on the, and he hit his ribs on the transmission hump that goes through the car. And uh, as Jerry's talking to him, and he's searching the president. And what a lot of people don't know was President Reagan was hit with a ricochet. The twenty-two hit the you know the door in his car in that car opened backwards. They were called suicide doors, and the bullet hit the door hit the edge of the door and flattened out. And when one it hit Reagan under the arm, and he was armpit, and it was flattened out. So it made like a, a knife wound, like a slice. And because his arm was down, it was basically he was putting a tourniquet on it. So when Parr searched him, there was no blood. And then as he's talking to the president, a little speck of blood shows up on Reagan's lip. And then Parr asks him another question, and a little more blood comes out. So he immediately tells the to, to go to GW. They spin the car around, and he saved his life. I mean, you know, now when I met Jerry Parr in 1996, 7, and... And I shook his hand and I said, it's so nice to meet you. You know, you saved the president's life. And he goes, no, I actually pushed him in front of a bullet. But, you know, I get what you're saying. And that's the way he looked at it. You know, right. Barr tells the story from his perspective. Technically, he pushed the president in front of the bullet. But, that, you know, he was closer to the car. He followed the procedure. He did the right thing. And then a nice recovery because he spotted the fact that Reagan had actually been hit in the lung. That frothy yeah. blood coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. We're coming up on another break here, and and but I wanted to ask you, in terms of the investigative wing of the uh, Secret Service, um, I have been I've read that the um, they can track somebody if they write a threatening letter to the president. They can track that person based on the ink in their pen. True or false? Yeah. True, true to a certain extent. Um, here's what you're kind of getting to. The Secret Service has an enormous ink library. They have an enormous library of ink, paper, writing devices, um, just about every, anything that anybody's ever used to write, transmit, um, even, you know, letters that they've gotten. You know, like sometimes you see in the mystery movies where they cut out words out of a magazine and paste it on a piece of paper. Right. right. I've, yeah, got, I've got to interrupt again. We'll, we'll pick up on this on the other side, Gary. I promise we won't forget the ink. Uh, the ink story awaits when we come back. Gary Byrne, former Secret Service agent, right here on the Conspiracy Show.
You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Gary Burns stays with us, a former U.S. Secret Service agent, and his new book, Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Before the break, we were talking about how the Secret Service have a way of tracking people, and it's in your desk drawer. It's a pen. The ink in your pen can be used to track the location of someone who is, let's say, writing uh, threatening letters and so forth. Before the interruption, you were discussing that point, Gary. Yeah, they have basically a library of paper, inks, even writing devices, as I mentioned earlier, of, uh, you know, inks that are, that come from chemicals, inks that are made from, from berries, inks that are made from, uh, even, even, uh, blood. Um, they, they have a history, uh, or a library of all this stuff, um, different examples of it. And, and they can, you know, if, if, a, if it's a repeat letter, if somebody, you know, writes a letter and it's a repeat letter, um, and they have an example of it, then they know where the ink came from, uh, possibly what type of writing implement it is, and then they pass this information on to the agents, and as the investigation is going on, if they come across it, they, and they can match ink, you know, in the writing device, and even in some cases where if someone wrote a letter on a pad, and they know what kind of paper they're looking for, if they can find that pad, for instance, in somebody's office, that has the trace marks from when the humans name, like when you put a piece of paper on it and you write, right, you leave right. the marks. Um, they've even made cases like that. So, uh, yeah, they have a, a fascinating um, a history of tracking paper and ink and different writing devices and envelopes and, and, and the materials that the paper is made out of. Fascinating. Uh, let's say hi to Mike from Mississauga. Welcome, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, guys. Enjoy your show, Richard. I have two questions for your guest. Uh, the first question is, there was a, a movie, uh, quite a few year, years ago called Dave, where they, where the president had a, uh, had a stroke and they found this guy that looked exactly like the president. Are, do you, does Secret Service or do you actually seek out and try to find people that actually look like the president? Is there a double? Great no. question. Yeah, so, great question. No, there's, they don't do that. It was kind of against the law. And what I mean by that is, is to use somebody that looks like a president and then put him in, in danger, whether he's in the Secret Service or not, it would be kind of hard to do. But I will tell you that once in a while, there's a Secret Service agent that does look like a president. When Bill Clinton was president, there was this agent, his name was Dave Carpenter, and he looked a lot like Bill Clinton from, you know, 100 yards. But he was never used to impersonate him. That's just kind of Hollywood. But I will tell you, I do remember the movie, and I thought it was a pretty good movie. But, uh, again, the, the law kind of prohibits you from doing that in this country. Yeah, my second question is, um, what was the worst threat that you guys found to be actually true? Were you actually, you know, thwarted something that was, you know, that could have led to, uh, well, you know, some, some major I damage? Earlier, during President, President Clinton's time, when he was in Manila, um, they found a bomb on one of the, um, underneath a bridge on a roadway that he was supposed to take, and it was about 25 pounds of explosives. That was pretty serious. Um, and there were some, there were some other ones, you know, there were, Anytime there was a white a fence jumper at the White House, whether it was an actual threat or just somebody goofing around, that's always a very intense time. But the, I think the worst threat um, that I saw as far as danger to the protectee was probably uh, in Manila with President Clinton when uh, they, they found that explosive. Mike, great questions. Thank you for that. Uh, how about the – does the president have an official food tester? 
not not in the way you would think. Like nobody tests the food, but they, but they purchase the food in certain ways, and the food is controlled, you know, by the White House cooks and by the the, the military. Um, over in the West Wing, there's a a, a Navy um, restaurant. They call it in the military. It's called the Mess, and the and the Navy Mess cooks for the president over in the West Wing during the day. The food that they purchase is purchased um, by the Secret Service and by the purchaser at the White House. And they buy the food. They go in plain clothes. Um, it's usually a uniform division officer, and they go all over the Washington, D.C. area. In, in the District of Columbia, in Maryland, and Virginia, they buy meat from one grocery store. They go to another grocery store and buy chicken. Um, they buy the rice from somewhere else. And... Um, and that's how they control the, the, the food safety. Um, are there times when they go to certain countries and they're concerned about where the food comes from? That's when the military guys, um, you know, get involved and, and they make sure that anything the president has been eating, that they made it, that they brought the materials to make it, and they, they know where it came from. All right, Gary, we're going to take a timeout. One final timeout. We'll come back and we'll focus in this next segment on... What's going wrong with the Secret Service? Gary Byrne, my guest, the author of Secrets of the Secret Service, the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. One final segment remaining with Gary Byrne. Secrets of the Secret Service. How do people get a copy of this book? It's still in bookstores, um, Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy books. And it's also on Amazon, uh, Amazon.com. Um, uh, you can also get it there. It's, it's in um, hardcover, softcover. It's also in digital and um, and on. Now, my uh, very basic um, understanding is when organizations begin to fray at the edges and buckle under pressure, often it has to do with mission creep. So is that the case with the Secret Service that uh, it's just it's um, the growing demands on the agency? Uh, Is it or is it something more to do with? Bureaucratic battles, tight budgeting. What's going on? It's kind of all of the above. Mission creep is actually a good way, a good place to start. You know, the Secret Service's original mission was uh, fighting counterfeit, and then, you know, then protection. And now they also do credit card and cell phone, cellular phone fraud, and they also because um, everybody's involved in anti-terrorism a little bit. And then there's also they do investigation into human trafficking, and and not that these things aren't important, but they're putting so much demand on the Secret Service. And the Secret Service is is guilty of of a couple things that all government agencies, especially law enforcement, are. They never say no. They don't ever want to tell a president or a cabinet member or a congressperson no, because they want their budget to expand. Every government director of an agency wants more money, a bigger budget, more employees, 
it's almost like they're trying to make themselves a little emperor. And I talk about many cases in, in, in Secrets of the Secret Service. I talk about one where a former director in 2014 had to admit publicly that with a $2 billion budget, that's billion and billion, um, he could not explain to Congress where the money came from, how he spent it. They didn't have an accountant or an accounting system. And, and he couldn't verify um, that they even spent all the money. Um, and, and, and so it's just one of those things where they, if you're looking for a sign that a government agency has gotten so big that it can't get out of its own way, that the modern-day Secret Service um, is a good example. And it's one of the agencies we should try to fix first because they have one of the most important jobs. You know, protecting the president is protecting the continuity of our government. And, uh, and protecting our counterfeit is a big deal, too. Uh, you know, protecting against counterfeit. So it it seems like one of the biggest obstacles to the agency protecting the president is the president. Sometimes, I mean, you can you can make that argument absolutely, but um, that's what the 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 job is. And and my take on it is, and I saw this with the people I protected. Yes, they, they do have some very aggressive lifestyles. You know, George. Herbert Walker Bush loved to get in his speedboat and go 70 miles an hour. And the Secret Service had such a hard time keeping up with them. They actually went to the boat builder and asked them to slow his boat down, and they said no. And then they, and then they went to him and said, okay, then build us two boats that are a little bit faster. You know, so um, the, the, the protectees are the problem at the time, or, or sometimes, but you have to adapt to their lifestyle. And, I mean, there's limits to it with, the, you know, there are points where Secret Service directors go to the presidents and say, look, this is just too risky, and we just cannot, you know, protect you under these circumstances. And they and they usually, you know, capitulate. Um, but the, the problem is, is the service is so expanded, and they're doing they're doing so many things, um, and they're not, and they have so many problems with retention. You know, years ago, agents never left a job, um, but they, they they're leaving in droves now. I interviewed at least a hundred agents that were leaving and uniform division officers in the next there's a, there's 1300 uniform division officers in the Washington DC area in the next three to five years 75 percent of them can retire and the, you know they're, they're they're basically about to collapse um, they've got a lot of issues they have to address well when I mentioned you know the president the obstacle I wasn't referring necessarily to the president deciding I want to get out of the limo and I want to I want to kiss babies. Right more to do with the president and his administration uh, expanding the agency's mission, particularly, let's say, in the wake of, of 9-11 and, and the George W. Bush administration. You're exactly right. Um, one of the one of the biggest mistakes they ever made with the Secret Service was taking it out of the Treasury and putting it in Homeland Security. And, and don't cut me wrong, I work for Homeland Security, and there's a lot of important jobs in there. But to put all those agencies under one umbrella... Especially the Secret Service, in my view, in hindsight, was a big mistake. And uh, well, give me an example of things that the Secret Service is doing now that they weren't doing pre nine eleven. Well, one of them is the um, the human trafficking, um, which again, very important job. But you know, the Secret Service doesn't really have. I mean, it's, you're just adding more work for them, and not that it shouldn't be done by somebody, but there's plenty of other government agencies out there 
that are doing that job and put the burden on them. The in my in, when I say in, in secrets of the secret services, the secret service should throw everything over the side except for protection of the president and counterfeit. They should get rid of the other stuff, and and they should realize what their limits are. And my fear is, is you know, they'll never consider this until we have another disaster. And if anybody doesn't think that it can't happen, it, it can. You know, I mean, I believe they're good at the jo their job, but they're only as good as, you know, they were 15 minutes ago. I mean, you know, mistakes happen. You know, I talked about the fatigue and, and the exhaustion of the employees. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's just... It, 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 these things have to be addressed, and unfortunately, we usually wait until they're a disaster before we address. Them. How many, how many people um, is the Secret Service directly protecting? I mean, um, yeah, in, the, not, in the White I'm not House, really sure. Yeah, I'm not really sure. It's it's classified, but I will tell you, like an, an honest guess would be, you know, you've got. Um, President Carter, easily a hundred people. A hundred people. Yeah, I would say word. that's an honest. I said I would say that's an honest ballpark. And that's just the PPD, right? Well, no, that's the Secret Service as a whole. The PPD is just protects the sitting president, so to speak. So PPD is protecting President Trump right now, and. They, they were like, you brought up a, uh, actually a good example. F five or six years ago, it was suggested that PPD expand, uh, the Secret Service expand PPD by a minimum of 200 agents. And they tried to do it, but they, but they, the agents are so burnt out that they, they can't replace them fast enough. You know, they're leaving and resigning and, and going to other jobs. And, um, and it's hard to keep those numbers up because again, you know, they're caught in this cycle of, of they work them into the ground, they tell them what they want to hear, they get them on the job, then they work them into the ground, and then they leave. And, you know, back in my day, not many people left, you know, and, but times have changed, and there's a lot of jobs out there, and, and people don't, you know, particularly like to be treated like that uh, anymore. So, Gary, we're almost out of time. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions. Absolutely. Is alcoholism is alcoholism a problem within the within the agency? It, it is a little bit. It, it's not so much alcoholism. It's bad management. It, it's you know it, it's okay for your employees to vent and go have a good time, but they you know they shouldn't be doing it eight hours before there's a function. The Secret Service's main problem is bad management and supervision. Um, that that. And that's when these problems with alcohol come up. That's the way I experienced it, and that's the way I see it today. Gary, thank you so much for hanging out for two hours again. Secrets of the Secret Service, the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service, available at all good bookstores, Amazon, of course. Gary, thank you again. Great to talking to you. My pleasure. Have a great night. You too. Gary Byrne. All right, back next week with a brand-new program, John Potish. Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the documentary. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.